Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Political State Podcast from The Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder, a journalist for The Oklahoman, covering state government, and joining me is The Oklahoman's lead state capital reporter, Carmen Foreman. Carmen, how's it going? Pretty well. Last last couple days before session, and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, calm before the storm, but we're in the middle of the storm, a winter storm that apparently has a name. I didn't know that we named winter storms. I can't remember I what the name of it is, but did not Leonard, know that either. So we're both in our, our separate houses in, in Oklahoma City, kind of snowed in here. Um, hopefully the snow will make give way on Monday when session starts and we can uh, we can get to the Capitol. Uh, but we'll be there whether it's snowing or raining or, or whatever the weather might hold. Um, this is the first episode, but actually kind of not really of this podcast. Um, has roots going back to, I think, 2015 uh, when our colleague Gail Denwalt was covering the Capitol. Um, and we started this political state podcast. Uh, former Oklahoma and federal government reporter Justin Wingeter was also on and myself. Uh, but Carmen, I think when you joined in 2019, you I don't know how long it went in 2019, but you were a regular on, on the podcast as well, right? Yeah, I was. And then um, you left and I got lazy. And so I did not continue it on. No, not not lazy at all. A lot on your plate. Um, yeah, I left Oklahoma that same year in 2019 um, and political state's been dormant. But since then, but when I decided to return late last year, one of the first things I wanted to do was revitalize the podcast. And so what better time to do it than a few days before the start of a new legislative session, which in this episode, we're going to talk about that session and kind of what to expect, especially on Monday as things get started. Um, but Carmen, I want to start with, you know, legislation, our legislative sessions are always kind of crazy um, and election years make them even crazier every two years. Right. Um, and then you add races for every statewide office, including the governor, the big one. Um, and 2022 is not going to disappoint. Um, tell me, what? how do you think overlapping an election year like this one with the legislative session is going to impact what kind of bills get filed, what kind of bills get heard, and what actually gets done at the Capitol? That's a great question. And, you know, the dynamic can be a little different every election year, but um, generally when an election year rolls around, you'll see more bills filed that just kind of are attention grabbing or, you know, fit great on a headline. Um, here's a good example. This isn't a bill, but, um, you know, I saw a headline earlier today that said, you know, Stitt wants to give, uh, wants to pay teachers $100,000. It sounds snappy. It sounds great. You put that on a mailer and, you know, I th- think that person would be hard pressed not to con- seriously consider voting for you. Um, Same goes for some of the bills that are filed, Um, you know, just sort of the general social issues category of topics that, you know, average Oklahomans get real fired up about, you know, whether that's abortion, um, whether that's the library books in their kids' school, or, you know, whether it's um, anti-LGBTQ issues, um, So in an election year, you tend to see more bills filed on those social issue topics, those controversial type issues, because, you know, when those lawmakers are running for office later in the year, they can say, well, I proposed a bill to 
audit the 2020 Mm -hmm. presidential election here in Oklahoma, or I proposed a bill to um, ban abortion entirely, not saying that our legislature only wants to um, limit abortions in election years. They try that most years, Um, but the push seems stronger, perhaps, in election years. Yeah, and um, I mean, and they're kind of responding to what they're hearing from constituents, right? I mean, and it's kind of a two-way street there. You mentioned that kind of the audit of the 2020 election. We were just talking before this episode about kind of the large number of election-related bills filed this year, and a lot of them are from Republicans and that are uh, taking, that are kind of insinuating that there are problems with the election process. Um, and we were talking, you and I were talking about it because I said, I find that interesting because, you know, two years ago, a lot of Oklahoma Republicans were saying, hey, Oklahoma has a great election system. You know, these other states need to do what we do, like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and these, you know, these, these states that went for Biden. Um, but this time around, you know, it sounds like they're not so trustworthy in the election process. And I was looking at some polling and the most recent poll showed that like 69 percent of Republicans still uh, feel like there are problems with the U.S. election system. Um, so they're tapping into kind of where the spirit of voters are, uh, you know, this year. You know, it's I think an interesting exercise every year would also would always be, you know, this time of year when these bills get filed and some of them get a lot of attention and you know, especially some news outlets are, you know, looking for copy or looking for footage, and it's easy to kind of go after some of these bills. Uh, it would be interesting to kind of rate, like, what chances these bills have, and you never really know, but but sometimes you do, you know, right? I mean, you've been in this game for long enough, myself included, so you can say, they're like, well, we know this bill doesn't have a chance, one, because we know leadership isn't on board with it, and it's not going to go anywhere. I honestly don't know this year with some of the bills. I mean, especially some of these, like, library and school curriculum bills. I mean, I don't know, two years ago, a bill that says that every school is required to have a King James version of the Bible, I would say it's not going to, the legislature is not going to waste their time on, but I don't know. I, I really am kind of a loss this year. I don't know. I think that just kind of speaks to the, the political climate we're in and, um, and, and maybe myself, maybe, you know, I, I think sometimes and now we're kind of getting off subject topic, but every year that goes by, I feel like I'm in more and more of a bubble, right? I mean, in this, uh, we always talk about the Washington bubble, but I mean, Oklahoma City bubble, right? I mean, you and I both live in Oklahoma City. We probably live in more left-leaning communities and just we're younger. You're more younger than I am. And, you know, I just, I don't know, all that to be said, it just, it seems like this year is a little bit harder to tell. Yeah, for sure. And it's, um, some of these things happen uh, sooner here in Oklahoma than they do in other states. So like a good example is the the ban on critical race theory. So Oklahoma passed legislation on that last year. And, and some might say it kind of came out of nowhere or was kind of a surprise. Um, and I think part of what factors into that is while there was some talk at the national level about that, we weren't seeing it necessarily pop up in as many other state legislatures. Whereas now, I mean, this year, like I'm, I worked in Virginia for a few years and I see that that's a big push out in Virginia with their new Republican governor that Mm -hmm. he wants to ban critical race theory. And so it's, it's like, it depends on where Oklahoma is, you know, if we're at the front of the horse race or at the back of the horse race, sometimes it's hard to tell and that can sway things. And then, you know, I also think about like things nationally can catch fire, you know, talking again about Virginia, but the Virginia governor's race this year and all the talk of, of having parents have more say in their kids' education. I think we'll see that as a pretty common theme throughout this session in what ways that manifests itself. It's hard to say whether that's, you know, letting parents decide what library books their kids read or are on the shelves or whether that's 
requiring schools to po post every single you know lesson plan that is being taught at their schools so parents can review it. Um, it's you know you can kind of tell from the national trends that that might be an issue here. But I do agree with you. It maybe I am stuck in a bubble because it can be hard to tell. You know what is um, what is going to make it and what is not. Yeah, I just think that the it's harder because, and we don't have to get down this road too far. But like, I I think I used to kind of know what the fringe was and on both sides, right? I'm not just talking about Republicans, but like, um, and it seems like what I, it would be easier to to identify, like, oh, well, the fringe is talking about this, but not so much here. Um, and even the last few years, you know, some may disagree with this, but like, I think the capital, the legislature, you know, has has tried to like steer away from a lot of those social controversial bills. I mean, not entirely, right? But, um, and some of that's because, you know, the even the chambers are saying like, hey, you gotta like, you know, kind of protect our interests and attracting business here. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got a speaker who's a banker, you know, who's kind of, you know, very, you know, probably focused on business and what's good for the economy. And and sometimes those bills aren't, but uh, um, I don't know, it's getting a little bit harder to tell. And I guess the, the lesson in all that is just to continue to talk to people. That's part of our job and, and um, and I guess we'll just kind of figure out together what this session holds and what actually gets gets a lot of day. I just feel like it's harder to determine. One thing that we know for a fact will be a topic of conversation, or at least at some point during the session, will be the budget, which I want to talk a little bit about with you. Um, lawmakers have a little more money to play with this year, um, although a good chunk of that increase is one-time funds, so uh, you know money that's not necessarily carrying over to the following year. Um, state agencies are asking for employee pay raises, which they have done consistently, but this year there seems to be even some more urgency on that. Um, both leaders of the Senate and House are seeking tax cuts, uh, yet the budget chairs in the Senate House both say that they want this to be a pretty flat budget and don't support tax cuts. Uh, obviously, things can change if the Speaker and Pro Tem want tax cuts, for example. There's reasons to think they could get them. Um, but first, what are the two main tax cuts that we've been hearing about, Carmen? Um, you know, one from the House and one from the Senate, mainly. Yeah, so um, the one from the House kind of carries over from last year. Last year, House Speaker McCall, Charles McCall, um, he's a Republican from Matoka. He tried to um, completely phase out Oklahoma's corporate income tax over this course of five years. Um, short version of that is it did not go over very well with the Senate, um, but I think the governor was kind of on board with cutting taxes last year. So they ended up um, dropping Oklahoma's corporate income tax rate from 6% to 4%, so a 2% cut. But Speaker McCall has said that he he's still very much interested in phasing out that corporate income tax. And he's said before that he's going to try again this year. Although if you, you know, go to the opposite chamber, Senate pro tem Greg Tree, who's a Republican from Oklahoma City, he says he's not really on board with that. But the thing is, he's also pushing his own tax cut this year, and he is supportive of eliminating the state's grocery sales tax. Um, so we have a 4.5% tax on, at the state level on all groceries, and then municipalities also, um, they also levy their own grocery taxes, and he he's not interested in doing away with those, but just the state mm -hmm. version. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny because, like, if you got rid of the, if you phase out the corporate income tax, or if you phase out the grocery tax, it would almost cost about the same um, in the realm of 300 million a year in lost tax revenue. Um, but it is setting the stage for like just a broader discussion on tax cuts. And like we mentioned, it's an election year. Governor Stitt is, um, you know, on the ballot and 
frankly, it sounds nice when you're a Republican and you're trying to win Republican votes to say, well, I cut taxes last year, cut taxes this year, and you're getting more money back in your paycheck. Yeah. You almost wonder if, uh, you know, you talk about the Senate not necessarily being on board with the corporate income tax cut, but now that they have their own, I mean, you see these as kind of bargaining chips a little bit to say, hey, we could go along with yours if you go along with ours. Absolutely. Definitely bargaining chip. I, I don't see both tax cuts taking place um, like in the same year, but you know, there could be a scenario where they decide, okay, we'll phase out the grocery sales tax and we'll also phase out the corporate income tax. So it, it's less of a budget hit all at once. Yeah. And usually Republicans don't need um, Democrats to go along with their, uh, you know, along with, the, they don't need them to vote on a bill for it to pass if they've got a large majority of their own caucus. But um, it is interesting to point out the grocery tax um, and you've written about this, that there's bipartisan support for this. I mean, this has been something that Democrats have pushed for as well. Absolutely. Uh, they've been really big proponents of this issue and eliminating the grocery sales tax um, even before this session. Um, and, and the thing I would point out with that is like, I think it's really popular with voters. Um, it, it's not to say that cutting the corporate income tax is not popular with voters, but when you can literally show every person, you know, when they go to the grocery store and they spend less money on milk, bread and eggs and all the essentials. And you can say, hey, we did that for you. We did that for each and every Oklahoman. I think that, you know, that really, I don't know, people really like that. Corporate income tax, cutting the corporate income tax, there is support for that, especially among maybe like the business community. I swear I've heard uh, former Governor Keating beat on that drum several times saying it will be a good tool to lure more businesses to the state. But the average Oklahoman doesn't really, you know, notice that is what I would say. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the grocery the grocery tax is a lot more you know, relevant to everyone's life. I mean, everyone goes to the grocery store unless you're at the like top, you know, half a percent, maybe if someone else goes, but, um, but we're all buying, we're all buying groceries and we can all, we all can see that. Um, so everyone is talking about boosting, also boosting the state's uh, savings account. Um, that's obviously been a focal point for the governor since he arrived. And, you know, he seems to have kind of impacted the philosophy on the legislative leaders, hasn't he? I mean, there's been some spat disagreement between the legislature and the governor over how much should be going into the savings count. And I think, you know, to the governor's credit, I think he can point to the economic downturn in the last couple of years due to the pandemic and say, hey, I'm, aren't you glad that we did put some money in that savings account? Um, but even the two budget chairs uh, that we've talked to have said recently that they wanted to boost that. The House Speaker the other day said that he wants to continue to boost the savings account. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, so I, I started at the Oklahoma just to I think maybe a few months after Stitt had taken office. And that was, you know, the first time I sort of heard him beat the drum of like, we need to beef up state savings account. And um, I remember there was resistance at the time and, and not just his first year in office, but his second year in office, there was resistance. And then, like you said, I mean, the COVID pandemic came along, made folks at the Capitol kind of realize, hey, maybe we do need a little bit more in our savings because some sort of force majeure or crazy incident could come along at any time. And we don't want to be in a situation where we have to cut state agencies or lay people off if that happens. Yeah. So if, if they kind of do boost the, you know, the so-called rainy day fund, um, and then we do see some tax cuts, even if they're phased, I mean, you're quickly running out of the money that's available to do stuff with. And so, um, you know, one thing that's been interesting to me in the early days is um, 
I have not heard a lot of support amongst legislative leaders for uh, for pay raises for state employees. Um, uh, you know, definitely for not across the board state pay raises. Maybe a little bit more targeted. A speaker the other day mentioned, uh, you know, maybe state troopers. Um, I know the Senate budget chair said state troopers are kind of you know something that would maybe be he'd be interested in, but. Um, it doesn't seem like we're going to see some major investments in other state agencies. I, we didn't see last year with education, but I don't know that we're going to necessarily see that again either this year. Yeah, and I mean, I, to play devil's advocate here, I mean, it is hard, right? The state has like, I think it's 32,000 state employees. So if you give an across the board raise, it's either got to be really small or you're spending a significant portion of that, you know, extra money you have. And as you pointed out earlier, it, a lot of it, the extra money is one time cash. So when you have to continue to pay these pay raises year and year, year after year, um, but you just had that surplus in the current year, well, you're going to be hurting a little bit down the line. The question yeah it's complicated when you start to factor in tax cuts, because then I think some state employees would argue, oh, well, if you have the money for taxes, you have the money to give us raises. Yeah, no, good point. Um, you know, we're going to get a little bit of a glimpse of what the governor would like to see when it comes to uh, the budget this year in the state of the state. We're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. But, uh, but before we move on to that, Carmen, I want to talk to you about medical marijuana, which I think we expect to be a pretty big topic of conversation at the Capitol this year. If you go back a few years ago, um, many legislative year leaders were against it. Um, you know, it didn't seem like something that Oklahomans would necessarily be in favor of uh, medical marijuana, especially as as liberally of a policy as was being proposed. But the people voted for it. And now we have a system and they obviously have some issues that legislators obviously have some issues with. Um, but they kind of have to tread lightly because there's so much popularity with the program, even many Republicans. I mean, this the, I mean, Republicans help pass this initiative. I mean, you have to get Republican support to pass statewide initiatives like this in Oklahoma. Uh, but Carmen, first of all, what are the main issues legislative leaders see with medical marijuana right here, right now they're trying to tackle? So what I hear often is basically like that there is, um, there's not enough enforcement of the current medical marijuana laws. And because of that, that means that there's basically a cannabis black market and that there are illegal grow operations. Largely I hear in rural Oklahoma where folks can go buy up tens of jillions of acres of land and then grow a bunch of medical marijuana. And then, you know, the thing is I hear they ship it out of state. They make more money there. Um, and so I would say that that's the main problem. And I feel like those complaints, especially from rural Oklahoma, have been growing and growing in the past year, year and a half, as, as, as the medical marijuana program has sort of found its footing. And then in that time period, we've also seen that the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Association Authority, Oklahoma Mar Medical Marijuana Authority, OMMA, um, you know, it's cycled through several directors since its implementation three and a half years ago. And now I feel like lawmakers have a better idea of, okay, you know, they recognize that our medical marijuana program has issues and they want to address those. And they see um, breaking OMMA off from the state health department as one of the ways to do it. Do you think we'll see some bills this year filed that would, you know, alter where OMMA is, is located as a state agency? 
Yeah. And the House has pushed this, I want to say a couple years in a row, they've pushed to break OMMA off and separate it. And whether that has been with add it to another agency or make it a standalone agency, that's been a big push of the House. There's been resistance in the Senate to do that, though. And I, I would say that part of the problem there is that this these giant omnibus marijuana bills always seem to make it to the Senate um, in the last week of session. And then there's just it seems like there's not a consensus among them. But this year, I mean, Senate pro tem Greg Treat said he, even he supports breaking the OMMA off from the health state health department um, to and he sees that as a way to boost its enforcement authority and its ability to basically crack down on those cannabis growers, cannabis sellers, any of those who are breaking state law. Yeah, well, we expect to see a lot of attention on that subject. And uh, we'll be following that along. Uh, finally, Carmen, uh, let's talk a little bit before we go about Governor Stitt's State of the State speech that he'll give on Monday. Um, it won't be the most interesting State of the State speech in the nation this year. Um, just look up West Virginia if you don't believe me. Um, did you see that? You're smiling. Don't the dog. Okay, the dog. It's the baby dog. Picture. Wait, it's not, what is? What's the? Dog I don't know what his name was, <laughs> and I I didn't get a good look at his face. Nobody did. Um, <laughs> but uh, but there will be interesting nuggets um, in Stitt's speech, nonetheless. I, I don't think there'll be a dog. Um, and we won't see it because we'll be, you know, where you're sitting, you're not going to, we don't have to get into it, but the press gallery is now behind the uh, podium. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to see it anyways. But uh, Carmen, uh, what are you expecting to hear? What are some things you're expecting to hear in this speech on Monday? Definitely. I definitely expect him to talk about McGirt. Um, I don't know what angle he'll take on McGirt. I don't know if it will be, you know, praising the U.S. Supreme Court for sort of re-looking at that issue or if it's going to be, you know, who knows, maybe a call to unity um, among state leaders and tribal leaders. I I would put that, you know, lower down on the if you're on the betting card. Um, uh, Definitely McGirt. I think he'll talk about education a significant amount. Um, What specifically he'll say about education is hard to predict. Um, I think he will talk about um, not targeted pay raises, but like pay incentives for teachers. Um, We're seeing a lot of problems with um, keeping teachers here in Oklahoma or just keeping teachers in the profession at all. Um, So, you know, it may not be a big pay bump for every teacher, but I think he's going to offer some ways to try to entice people to stay in the profession. I think, um, you know, just looking at Virginia, I mean, uh, Governor Stitt endorsed now Governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, and Glenn Youngkin has made this uh, a big issue of giving parents more say in their children's education. Um, Based on how frequently we've heard Governor Stitt talk about, you know, how parents need to have a say in whether their kids have to wear a mask to school. Parents need to say in whether their kids uh, get an in-person schooling option or um, decide whether they want their kid to go virtual. I mean, I just think that he'll be talking about uh, education from a parent's point of view. Yeah. Uh, those, yeah. Those speeches are, are are easier to write when there's a Democrat in the White House I, I, <laughs> from past experience. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Fallon had Obama and talked about him a lot in, in D.C. And it always it just kind of seemed like in Stitt's early years when he when you had Trump in the White House, um, you didn't hear I mean, you didn't hear about state rights as much. You didn't, I mean, you didn't hear about, you know, trying to, 
you know, fight off Washington. And, um, you know, you heard a little bit of swamp language that was that was common with Trump. But now but now Biden's in, in office. And we heard this a little bit last year. And I think we'll hear it again this year where it really is now a time that I think we'll see from Stitt. And we're seeing this from other lawmakers where it's it's Oklahoma versus Washington. And that's that will present himself as I'm I'm the defender of our of you know of our rights from Washington. But I do it's interesting. I think you're right about um, how much we'll hear about education and the role of parents. And it just seems like the conversation has shifted a little bit. Where you know many Republicans have been in favor of school choice and kind of more uh, more empowerment for families. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be in favor and start thinking get legislation done. But we've seen talk in favor of like vouchers and. And school choice and open transfer has been successful in recent years, um, but now there's this really the the, the the drums really being beaten on parental rights and and parental control, and it's an interesting linguistic argument, right? Because how do you argue that? I mean, how do you you know you say like no, your parent parents shouldn't be in charge of their kids, and of course that sounds absurd, and so it seems like they've really spent a lot of time setting up that argument. I expect to hear a lot of that on Monday. Yeah, agreed. I I wondered if, I mean, he's talked before about, um, you know, pro-choice legislation as well. I think we maybe will hear a little bit about that, um, but he's pretty much covered his bases there saying I'll sign any pro, quote unquote pro-life bill that comes to my desk. Um, as for like social issues, I, I wonder if we'll hear anything about that from him since it is an election year, but I don't know what I would pick. I mean, he talks frequently about the uh, anti-critical race theory law that he signed last year but i don't know how you build on that yeah or if you I mean, can he, yeah although maybe you just you know you, you take a victory lap on that i guess um you know it is election year and his top challenger will be sitting right in front of him uh superintendent joy hoffmeister um if she follows tradition will be uh you know sitting in the chamber for his speech um i'm curious to see kind of how much he talks about I don't expect him to mention her or mention the election. I, I, but like, how much does he try to like talk about conservative values in a way that you can kind of see he's trying to dif- differentiate himself from his top challenger, who is a former Republican, just turned Democrat, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wants to remind, I mean, nobody has forgotten that Stitt is a Republican, right? But he wants to... Sh- ensure his base that he is not going to take the Hoffmeister route and, you know, I guess go soft on conservative values. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, it's not, well, I don't know what this general election is going to look like once we get there. And it's, I mean, Democrats are at a big disadvantage in this state. It's going to be interesting to see how Hoffmeister tries to run her campaign, but so far she's running as a moderate. And almost as a quasi Republican, still like one foot still in the Republican camp, maybe you know, but just with a new label as a Democrat. Um, but definitely not to the you know when it comes to talking to his base and even probably the majority of Republicans. I think Stitt is going to bang the drum on. Um, I'm a Republican. There's no doubt about that. Like I'm, I'm firmly in this camp, and um, I, you're not going to get moderation from me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm firmly in this on this team, and so I think we'll 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 hear a lot about that. Absolutely. And I thought of one more thing. You mentioned victory laps, uh, COVID-19, the pandemic still happening. I'm sure we'll hear Governor Stitt talk about that. I assume like last year, he will praise his own handling of the pandemic, which I think some people would take issue with. But um, but maybe he'll take the route that he's taken for the past, I don't know, six, nine months, which is not to talk about COVID at all. 
Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. Uh, he during this latest peak, he definitely has. We haven't seen the even the kind of press conference we we saw. You know, him standing with doctors. I mean, from the health side, he's pretty much avoided this topic. You know, especially over the last several months. Um, but as he did last year, I think he'll once again talk about how he kept the state open. That was good for the economy. Unemployment's low in Oklahoma. Um, you know, and that was his goal out of the, you know, you go back two years ago. I mean, that's what he said out of the gate. Like, I want to, I want to protect our house, but I also want to protect our economy. And, um, you know, he's, I think he'll probably champion, he'll present himself as a champion of doing both. Yeah. But I, I don't think, but we won't, we won't hear any talk about like the need to, um, I don't think we'll hear any talk about how he plans to battle the pandemic as a health issue. No, definitely not. I think he's of the mindset more so that, you know, the pandemic sticking around for as long as it sticks around, COVID's always going to be with us. And so we just, we just have to learn to deal with it is what he would say. Yeah. And we saw that last year. I mean, you know, and uh, the more time goes by, the less things seem to change. So there'll probably be some similar, similar echoes in the speech as compared to last year. So, um, well, finally, any, any other interesting things you're, you're expecting or um, even if, you know, you don't necessarily think you'll hear, but you'd like not not the you person like to see, but you're curious to hear as a reporter in his speech. Oh man, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I don't have anything anything for you. I, I don't expect there'll be any big you. wild card. No, I don't. I don't think there'll be any big wild card. I mean, I'm interested to see what he says about the budget. Um, I am interested to see if he talks about kind of the federal relief funds that continue to flow into the state um, infrastructure. Uh, you know, the money that's going to be coming into Oklahoma. Um, I'm curious to kind of see what he says about that. Uh, you know, one thing that he's been pretty, not, don't say good about, but one thing that's kind of irregular in his speeches is he will point to specific people. And we've seen that from governors before, but like, um, I'm curious to see who does he highlight? Does he highlight? Um, I expect him to mention a teacher by name. There'll probably be a teacher in the gallery. Um, maybe even a state employee who has been subbing. I expect that maybe he'll point to a state employee that he invited to the gallery that says, you know, stepped up and took part in his, uh, you know, substitute plan that he announced a few weeks ago. Um, I think he'll point to some parents. Um, I think he's done it a couple of times where he's pointed to a family that uh, has benefited from school choice legislation or would benefit from school choice legislation. And I I bet we see him point to a family um, that took advantage of the open transfer law. I bet. I don't know if he will or not, but it wouldn't surprise me to see that he points to a family that took advantage of that. I think those are all good guesses. I think they're all very likely. I would add one more. Yeah. Um, I would say that it's, I would not be surprised if he had a guest that was, um, how would, maybe he would describe as a quote victim of the McGirt ruling. Mm, Yeah. perhaps a family or a person who um, maybe lost a loved one or had a loved one victimized by somebody who was locked up and then let out of prison because of the McGirt ruling. I could totally yeah. see that. Yeah. I think we'll hear a lot about McGirt. It'll be interesting how he frames it though, because as you talked about, he kind of, he kind of celebrated the court's ruling a couple of weeks ago. A lot of us kind of cocked our heads thinking like, you didn't really win, but I mean, <laughs> you took a pretty, you took it on the chin, um, but he framed it as a win. So how does he frame it in the speech? Does he frame it as I'm, I've, I've won, but, but then he also has to frame it as it's still a problem, you know? I mean, so, um, but I think you're right. I think we probably will hear, uh, you know, a victim story. Um, that's what we've seen in the past, you know, you know, every year there's always new people around him. So we'll see what kind of style he takes with the, takes with the speech. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, you won't actually be seeing him, 
give the speech because you'll be sitting behind him, right? Like the I way know, that you right? Like I, maybe I'll get lucky and I'll see the back of his head from the the press gallery in the house. But um, I, more than likely, you're going to have a better view watching on the live stream. So yeah, uh, renovations to the Capitol have been undergoing, and they finally got done inside the the chambers, and they moved our was was once a, a glassed in press box facing the podium behind the chamber is now an open aired press box i guess behind behind the podium so and I, you, guess you'll be I, I will say i miss i will miss the glass press box because you could swear heavily in there and nobody would hear you except yeah. the other members of the press um but now i guess i'll have to keep my swearing to a minimum well now you get to stare stare the lawmakers down in the, in, in the face uh, that's true you know. although i have a really funny story that i will keep very quick but like i think it was like toward the end of session last year you know we were, we were the press were still sitting behind the lawmakers in the house mm -hmm. and at that point um pro, speaker pro tem terry o'donnell he had a report on his desk that it said um it said confidential in bold letters on every page and because i was sitting behind the lawmakers i could see i was like what why would you bring that onto the house floor and read it there? And so I texted a couple of the lawmakers and I was like, what, what is that report about? Why would he bring a, a very glaringly obvious confidential report uh, onto the house floor? Uh, spoiler alert. It was about capital security protocols. Uh, it's apparently was, I was told it was not super exciting. And I was also told I could not get a copy. You know, if I had to keep some confidential documents together, I don't think I'd put confidential on it. It just draws right? more attention. I know, right? That just makes you more interesting. But yes, a reporter gets excited when you see a, a document labeled confidential on anyone's desk. So maybe it's my fault that we got moved in the chamber. Maybe so. I have a feeling it had to do with people who talked about what they saw on lawmakers' uh, laptops and phones. Maybe that I think it had yeah. more to do with that, maybe. <laughs> but, Good uh, guess. <laughs> either way, a different view, a different view, but, uh, but the same story. So, um, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Political State. We'll be back next Friday to discuss what we actually saw in the first week of the session and on Monday. Uh, the session does start Monday in Oklahoma and we'll have a team of reporters at the Capitol really for the entire session. Um, and if you'd like to keep up with the latest and support our journalism, uh, please consider becoming a digital subscriber, which you can do for just $1 for the first three months, Carmen. Uh, just in case you're not a subscriber, but I bet you are. Um, you can actually, uh, I, you look at my Twitter account, Benfelder underscore OKC. I put a link in my bio to that special offer. So click it, uh, one buck, and it's got you covered for really the majority of the session. Um, and then hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll stay on with the normal right after that. But uh, for Carmen Foreman, I'm Benfelder. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you next week.